0: Hello and welcome to the program. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Very interesting program ahead of us tonight. You know we have spoken a lot on this show in recent years about the effects of climate change which are becoming ever more apparent and ever more disruptive. One of the most immediately obvious consequences of the changes that we humans have brought on our planet's weather systems has been the increased impact of wildfires. As summers have become hotter and drier the risk of fires taking hold in forests, bogs and grasslands has increased. Tense, ominous reports about households fleeing out of control infernos as fire crews risk life and limb to battle them have become staples of news bulletins at this time of year. This summer alone, thousands of people were forced to flee enormous blazes in France, Spain, and Portugal as the abundance of dry tinder and high winds conspired to create ideal conditions for one of nature's most destructive phenomena. Europe is burning. In Spain, fires have spread across thousands of hectares of land in Galicia, Castile,
1: Leon, Catalonia, Extremadura and Andalusia. Many have had exceptionally close calls. The fires have
0: already killed several civilians and emergency personnel since last week, most recently a fireman who died late yesterday. Evacuees from the Catalonia wildfire No, they got out just in time. Our house is completely burned, says this man. Meanwhile, farmers in the region have been trying to move their animals away from the advancing flames. This is the eighth day of the heat wave in Spain, which has recorded over 500 estimated
1: heat-related deaths.
0: Greece, too, has been especially hard-hit this year, in a pattern that now seems to be becoming the norm, for what was already one of Europe's hottest and fire-prone countries. And the problem goes yet further. As I speak, wildfires are raging out of control across vast swathes of Siberia, devastating some of the largest continuous expanses of forest in the world and threatening endangered plants and animals, not to mention local communities. But wildfires are not just a problem for other parts of the world. Here in Ireland, they are increasingly becoming a very unwelcome fact of life, as abnormally dry woodland and peatland conditions combine with human carelessness and even deliberate malice. For the inescapable fact is, we humans are responsible for these fires, in several ways. We have driven the changes to our climate that have increased their frequency and impact. We have impaired the ability of our natural ecosystems to temper and control their rage. And we also have the very unfortunate tendency of starting them in the first place. Recently, for example, we have witnessed the destruction by fire of large sections of Killarney National Park, home to perhaps the most precious native woodland on our island. The blaze on Killarney Hill in South County Dublin, which generated so much media attention, showed that wildfires are not confined to remote areas of wilderness. Even the leafy suburbs are now at risk. Wildfires are nothing new, of course. They form part of our natural process that has played out for hundreds of millions of years. And they are not necessarily always bad or unwelcome. Indeed, certain crucial ecosystems rely on wildfires for their survival, as the flames provide both space and fertile soil for plant communities to prosper and, in turn, for the animals that depend on these plants to thrive. Occasionally, wildfires can be of benefit and can even form part of essential conservation strategies. The problem is, however, wildfires are no longer occasional. In an ever-growing number of places, they have become the norm. They are also hitting closer to human habitation than ever before, with life and property coming under increasing risk. It's a vicious circle. As thousands of square kilometres of forests and grasslands go up in smoke, so, huge quantities of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are released into the atmosphere. The fires also destroyed the trees and other plants that play such a crucial role in recapturing these gases. More fires mean fewer trees, mean even more fires, mean even fewer trees. It's clear that novel solutions are required if we are to attempt to bring this problem under control. One way of doing this is to prevent the tinder, which fuels the fire outbreaks, from accumulating in the first place. In the absence of the once widespread grazing animals that used to roam our landscape and perform this service, a more hands-on approach to nature is required. One such approach is being trialled with a herd of goats on Dublin's Hoth Head. Terry Flanagan has more on this story. Terry. Yes, Derek. I'm sure the listeners will remember the wildfires on
2: Hoth Head over the last couple Mm -hmm. of years and the worry that it's caused to the locals and the fire brigade. These are very serious fires and they've become a more common occurrence. So something needed to be done. One of the reasons for this is that the vegetation has changed over the last 70 years or so. Whereas before that, it was mostly heather. Without constant grazing, the landscape, it's changed to mostly gorse and bracken. And these plants, they're much more burnable. So, Fingal County Council devised a plan, and a three-year project commenced last September. This involved reducing these plants, and to introduce firebreaks, and most importantly, to maintain these firebreaks throughout the year. And to maintain these firebreaks, it was decided to introduce a herd of goats onto Hoth Head. During the week, I headed off to Hoth Head, where I met up with Hans Visser, the Biodiversity Officer with Fingal County Council, and the goat herder, Melissa Jurgen, to see if the strategy is working.
3: Now, Terry, if you just have a look behind you there, that's uh, Martin Hill. That uh, that hill burned last year for about six weeks. And this is basically what we're trying to avoid now going into the future. Well, looking up there, it's totally black. And I can see no plants on it at all for, must be acres and acres. Yeah, like it's, uh, it, the fire did devastate everything that was on that hill. And it's going to be, we estimate it will take around 10 years to recover for the heather and everything to come back again. So I suppose in one sense, this was a bit of a wake-up call. Well it was, well I suppose we the, the real wake up call was actually for us in 2018 when a, the, another section here in Holt actually went up in flames and it like, come, came really close to several houses and also on our own council owned lands as well and that's really when we thought we have to kind of take a much more proactive approach to dealing with wildfires on Holt. So you devised a strategy, tell us about that. Well we worked with international wildfire experts from the UK and Spain who came over, who assessed the, the whole of Holt uh, in terms of like they, they kind of looked at the elevations and they looked at the ...the vegetation that was there... ...the height of it... ...just to kind of idea... ...how much burnable material... ...there is on the hill basically... ...and then they advise a strategy... around creating sort of wildfire breaks... ...at strategic locations... ...to make sure that the fires... ...will never really reach properties... first of all... ...but also as well to cut up the landscape... ...into smaller sections... ...so if a fire were to occur... ...that it only becomes a small one... ...and it, with those fire breaks... That, ...those are the places where... ...the likes of Dublin Fire Brigade... ...basically can wait for the fire... ...to reach it... ...and then they can kind of... ...put the fire out in those areas... The firebreaks are usually around uh, 30 to 40 meters wide. And there are areas that where you have really short, short grass or uh, a short header. Like there's, there's fairly little to burn, basically. And it just means that the fire brigade only needs a little bit of water, or you can dump it by hand to kind of, when, when the flames get into it, that they're small enough for the fire brigade to kind of put them out, even like with, like with small equipment or with, uh, or with beaters, for example.
2: Now, I'm familiar with Holthead. As a kid, I used to come out here back in the 70s and 80s. We used to go down to Red Rock to swim down in Red Rock. And the vegetation I
3: always remember here is just basically two plants, gorse and bracken. Yeah like in the past actually if you look at pictures from the 1950s actually like all of this was heather but around the 1950s a lot of the livestock disappeared from Holt and that was goats and horses and cows and I suppose since that nature did its own thing since and like so gorse and bracken were the, were the things that took over completely and I suppose the consequence of that is that we have a lot more burnable material on hold uh, throughout i suppose on all the areas here and also that the the gorse itself is quite flammable it it contains oils that that make it quite flammable so it it just increases the wildfire risk so that's why our primary focus on dealing with wildfires here are actually targeting areas with the gorse and the bracken as well so your first
2: job was really to remove as much of this gorse as possible, and then what you needed to do was to introduce these fire breaks.
3: Yeah, so like, well, the the idea basically was to kind of by creating the wildfire breaks, we did that with heavy machinery. So this was diggers and everything too, and it didn't look pretty, but it, that was just essential to kind of get those done as soon as possible. And so like, once that is done, and now we kind of have to look at the maintenance of those fire breaks, and that's where the goats come in. So the idea basically is that we actually use the goats to keep the vegetation in those fire breaks nice and short, and goats are perfect for that purpose because they eat things like the, the gorse the bracken the bramble anything we don't want in it basically they'll they'll eat it away
2: okay joining us also is melissa melissa you are the goat herder here can we walk over here a bit because we're just outside your nursery paddock yeah yes and as i look in i can see six what look like baby goats
4: they're kid goats yes so there are new recruits and they've been currently been weaned so they're here at base camp the rest of the herd is out out at work at the moment now
2: you're the goat herder what does that entail
4: um, so I manage the herd here in Hoth. It's a herd of old Irish goats. So I'm their, their leader, I suppose. They're, Your they're s- their Your mammy. Their <laughs> mammy. They're my kids, <laughs> I suppose. So yeah, I manage the herd here in Hoth. We started with 25 goats in September last year. And through a breeding programme and the addition of new stock from some of our satellite herds, we've grown the herd to 63 goats now.
2: And you're using these to maintain these fire breaks.
4: Yes, so we have the herd actually split into three groups. So we have a bachelor herd, they're the mature boys. They come in first to kind of do the more destructive kind of work on the firebreak and graze it out. And then we have the maternity herd that follow in uh, with nannies and kids. And then we also have a teenage herd, so last year's kids that would follow up.
2: Now, how do they maintain the firebreaks? Because I would be worried that they would wander.
4: We're utilising a virtual fencing system. So all the adult goats are wearing a collar. It's a GPS tracking collar, I suppose, in a way, and it also contains a battery. So it's a no-fence system. So with that, I can set out a paddock on my phone and allocate the goats to that paddock. So to the unknown eye, I suppose, you could see the herd out grazing with no fences and it would look like they're roaming free. They're not, in fact, they're actually contained in strategic grazing sites, which we are managing to maintain those fire breaks, and they're contained within that using the collars.
2: Very ingenious
4: it 's brilliant, yeah, yeah, like no
2: fences at all on Hoth head,
4: no, and goats have a reputation, so the fact that these guys are obeying a collar is is great have you,
2: Have you lost <laughs> any yet no, we haven 't no <laughs> How much a day do they eat?
4: A goat eats about three to five percent their body weight, so a female goat um, weighs in around thirty five to forty kilo. So that's about two kilo of pure forage they would eat in a day. The males are a bit bigger, up to about 60 kilos, so they could eat up to three kilo of forage on a daily basis. And With these a, guys are happy to work seven days a week. It must be making a noticeable difference. The goats are making a great impact on, on the landscape. Their appetite is ferocious. And the main thing is that the diet and the forage that is here, it's what they like. These guys being the old Irish goat, that is a primitive breed, their grazing palate is for woody herbaceous plants. So they love going into the scrubby plants, the gorse, the bracken, the briars, the thistles, all that.
2: They love those plants? Yeah, you wouldn't see them happy in a green field. How do the locals react to the goats here on Hoth Head?
4: I think they're pleasantly surprised. Um, they're quite majestic and quite a nice sight to see on the hill. And people are very intrigued and excited to see them and try to spot them. They do blend in, I suppose, so it can be hard to see them. But in general, the the reaction is very positive. They're very happy to see the goats and with that, time will tell to see how, how successful it can be.
2: Okay, let me go back to Hans. Hans, are you happy with the progress for the last year?
3: Oh, very much so. Like, we have experimented now sort of with different uh, grazing densities, I suppose, like, even experimenting with like you know, to see what the males and the females and the kids can do. Uh, so I think now the first year, we have kind of get the project set up. We kind of know exactly what it is that they can do now. And I suppose the next phase now, for the next year, we're kind of establishing all the sort of the satellite herds in each of the locations around Holt to kind of sort of to make sure that all the wildfire breaks are basically grazed and also kind of allow us to see actually whether predictions are actually correct. So where we can say, okay, well, if you have an acre of a wildfire break with gorse that's half a meter high, the, that you need say ten goats for two weeks, and, and the, the, because it will kind of allows kind of to start predicting how much grazing you need to in a particular area. Mm-hmm. So that's really for the second year that we want to test that uh, that element of the project a lot more. So, what's the hope then for the future, 5, 10, 20 years' time? Well, I suppose it's a three year pilot study to kind of find out, I suppose, to prove the concept. And I think even now in the first year, I think it's already looking at we can actually prove that concept. Uh, I think we'll be increasing the numbers of goats to kind of, so we have enough goats here to kind of graze all the wildfire breaks and hold. We don't know the exact number which that is yet, because I suppose as we kind of go from area to area, we kind of learn, okay, well, they need a bit more here or a bit less than the other. So, I think like the idea is to build up the numbers of goats and then uh, like, I I do expect that it will probably be here in the long haul anyway uh, in in terms of just kind of as a sort of a maintenance crew for these wildfire breaks, because I suppose we will have to maintain us into the future anyway.
0: Well, as Hans has pointed out there in Terry's report, ongoing maintenance and vigilance seems to be the key. But as the risk posed by wildfires here in Ireland becomes ever more pronounced, the scale of the problem can seem daunting. I'm joined now by Any Ilana, Richard Collins, and Niall Hatcham. We're going to speak with Kieran Nugent. Kieran is a regional forestry inspector with the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. And he's going to explain now more about the damage being done by Irish wildfires and the measures being undertaken both to control and to prevent them. Kieran, thank you for joining us on the programme today.
5: You're very welcome.
0: This may seem a little bit odd to begin with, but can you explain exactly what a wildfire is? How do you define one?
5: So, a wildfire is any fire in a rural area that is over one hectare. That's two and a half acres in size. That requires a response that needs somebody to come in and do something about it, usually the fire, the fire service. And and that's the, that's the international definition for, for, for wildfire. And basically, they're unplanned fires, they're uncontrolled fires. And, it's really important then that we limit those. uh, But it's also important that we understand why they happen, that we understand the processes involved, and then we can intervene in those processes. It's much more effective. So fighting fires and the way things are at the moment, that fire suppression, you see this all over Europe. Some of the best prepared, best equipped services in Europe are having severe difficulties fighting the types of fires now. We're now in the climate change projections. The things that people said would happen are now happening. And uh, we have to adjust and adapt our systems uh, to do that. Now, the fires themselves are bigger than the response capabilities. We're seeing this in lots and lots of countries. So we have to take steps at landscape level. We have to take steps to manage the problem in different ways than just simply fighting the fires. It doesn't work in these situations.
0: No, and fighting the fires, you know, we sit back in our homes and we think, well, if we have a fire, we can call the fire brigade and hopefully they'll get before too much damage is done and they can plug into a fire hydrant and spray the water on the fire and dampen it down.
5: That's not the
0: case when it comes to a wildfire because usually they take place in remote areas.
5: They they usually do, but we saw a really good example of one in an urban area in South Dublin, Mm -hmm. in a place where people maybe don't see the risk for. We saw really good work done by by Dublin Fire Brigade, but we also saw really really dangerous conditions, and local communities directly threatened, and obviously then requiring the fire service to come in and intervene, which they did very very well. But that shouldn't need to happen. People have to be aware of the risks around their homes, and remove and treat the vegetation and plan their gardens plan their landscapes to take account of fire in some of these high fire risk areas so it's not just in donegal it's not just in kerry and mayo we can see this on the fringes of our of our of our larger cities as well and it's really important that we take steps and make sure that the landscapes are managed properly and at a bigger scale out in larger landscapes, in agriculture, in our mountains, in our national parks, we have to do that at a much, much bigger level. And that's I suppose that's where that's where we come in. And that's where the farming sector is really, really important. The forestry sector, the work that we do on our side has impacts on, on our fire risk. And I suppose it's really important now that we start to orient our farming practice, we start to orient our forestry practice towards uh, reducing fire fire risks at, at landscape level. And that's largely what we've been doing now over the last few years. It's the location of the fires and the conditions that they burn in that really defines what the impacts and what the outcomes are. Early fires in March and early April are generally not as severe. The ground is wet, the litter layers are wet, and it's really only the surface vegetation that's burning off. But the later fires in late April, and these summer fires that we're seeing now, these can cause permanent damage where the soil is drier, the peat is dry. And if the fire gets into the peat, it can set fire to the peat underneath and cause really difficult incidents to, to deal with. It's very difficult to put out subsurface peat fires. Kildare Fire Service have to deal with this quite a lot. It's really, really difficult. We see this in Leash. And just recently, Leash Fire Service have now invested in new equipment, new types of trucks that they can get out onto the bogs more quickly with more water and deal with these fires in a much more effective way. Once the peat goes on fire, you're in for a few days then with with firefighters to try and put and dig out those fires. It's very labour intensive.
0: We say wildfires, but are they natural? In other words, is somebody actually lighting a little campfire and it spreads or is something else happening which has nothing to do with human intervention whatsoever?
5: Fires light for a variety of reasons. They're, they start for a variety of reasons, but there is usually in Ireland it's usually human involvement. And the, the joke is internationally that there's you know there's three main causes of fire: it's men, women, and children. Humans cause fires accidentally. Some people do it deliberately. There's malicious fire fire, fire starts. The key thing is is the location where where they start and the conditions that people are using fire in. If people are lighting campfires in really high-risk conditions, and we've seen good examples of this in the last few years, some of our most difficult fires since the lockdown, since 2019, 2020, 2021, have started by just members of the public out doing silly things, lighting campfires in the wrong places, in the wrong circumstances, and in the wrong weather conditions, not heeding the weather warnings, not heeding the requests from rangers and foresters not to light fires. And we've had some really big and really complex fires starting just from simple campfires. The recreational users are starting to become much more apparent in some of our fires than they have been in the past. And that's a real worry because there's a lot of recreational users out there now in the countryside. This isn't just about farmers burning and a lot of the reports focus on farming. That's less prevalent now. We also see people who are involved in turf cutting. There are clear linkages between turf cutting practice and the burning off of some of these bogs, and that causes some of our biggest fires. That has been really difficult in the last few years as well. We've people dumping rubbish illegally in forest sites and on bog sites, and they're burning that rubbish, or other people are coming along afterwards to burn the rubbish, and that is starting fires in some really uh, sensitive places and we have nesting issues. We have all of those things happening as a result uh, of these types of of ignitions. So there's a lot of range of different people out there who light fires. Some of it is deliberate, and some of it is purely accidental. But everybody has to be aware now of the risks in our landscape, particularly in spring, when the vegetation is dead. It's really, really uh, important that people behave appropriately and don't Light fires unnecessarily, and don't light fires in 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 places where they're going to lead to larger wildfires.
1: Kieran, how are you doing? It's good to talk to you about this today. Now, the elephant in the room is: we have legislation, we have penalties, and yet none of these are put in place. It's a no offence to light a fire that spreads into the wild. And if the person who set that fire can be found, then it's either the guards or the National Parks and Wildlife Service who should do the prosecution. There are fines up to four or five thousand, two years in jail. They are never employed. And the dogs on the streets know that the landowners are setting gorse fires between the 1st of March and the 1st of September when it's completely illegal to do so. It doesn't take much effort to know who was lighting their course in the first instance, even if it doesn't cause a fire, a wildfire. It's an offence to do so. Nobody is being penalised for this at all. Why have we got legislation? We're a great country for legislation. We never implement it. Why is this not happening?
5: Legislation is one part and law enforcement is one part of a system that's needed. The problem with, with fire and law is that fire doesn't really pay any heed to laws if people go on light fires you're then into into physics and chemistry and the spread of, of those things you're coming in then with penalties after the fact after the damage has happened and it's really it's it, it's not a good place to to focus on what we've seen in the last few years the agriculture community and particularly in the uplands where fires are, are happening illegally the department comes in and we're monitoring fires. We have people who are looking uh, on a week-to-week basis at at fire activity, and following up on illegal fires or fires that might be illegal, with inspections and satellite imaging of the of the land. And the farmers involved can face penalties without court, without laws. They face penalties under the uh, agriculture regulations that they're that they're signed up to under the basic payments. Now, in the last few years, we are seeing much less burning activity by farmers as presumably as a result of this and also what we're seeing is a lot of fires the bigger fires that we're seeing are happening on land that isn't farmland it's not managed by farmers it's managed by other other agencies other bodies and it's open to the public and our largest fires are happening on land that where there is no farming involvement we've seen this repeatedly so it's it's the, the legislation is is part of the mixture But we need a much, much bigger cooperative effort on this. There are lots more things that we have to do apart from enforcing. We should be enforcing the laws that are there. Uh, And in fairness to National Park Service, they have had prosecutions, quite a few prosecutions under the Wildlife Act for illegal burning in the last few years. And there have been prosecutions under the Criminal Damage Act. Much, much more serious set of legislation with much, much more serious penalties. There have been prosecutions under the under the Criminal Damage Act for people who have set fires illegally. So it's part of the mix, but it's not a silver bullet for solving this, not by any means. We can't control the weather and we're in a climate change scenario now. The, the projections that people said would happen are now with us. They're now We're now there. And we can't control people's behaviour. We can influence law-abiding people there are good people out there. Most people out there obey the law, but there are still people who will light fires anyway. There are still people who will do this maliciously or illegally in, in any event. And there are still accidental fires that happen that give rise to to larger events. So we, we can't control every ignition
1: and we can't influence every person. Well, it must be the greatest secret ever that these penalties have been put on people. You would imagine that the, the what do they call them, the third estate, the newspapers would be reporting on these. I mean, I have been watching out all the time, I've been looking it up to see how much fines were paid, to derisory two or three hundred euro fines. I haven't seen an example of anyone being made. And there are farmers, light and gorse fires that go out of control and there are no... Obvious. maybe they're secretly losing their basic farm payments, but I looked that up too and it said, while this is possible, it hasn't actually happened. So, I mean, I don't know why if these prosecutions are happening, why we're not hearing about them. I mean, if people were knowing that they were definitely going to be definitely going to be prosecuted if they lit a gorse fire, whether or not it led to a wildfire, they would think twice about doing it. I think you're letting them off too easily altogether, indeed.
5: I don't, I don't agree. I've seen, it, I've seen it myself and in the last few years penalties have been applied directly by the department these are private contractual arrangements between individuals so there, there isn't a there isn't a publication of this in it but certainly in the last few years this uh, types of penalties have been applied and we are seeing a very definite change in behavior in a lot of areas as a result of this
1: are some species of trees more flammable than others or if the forest is well planted with, with rides and glades and breaks for fire and that, does it not matter which kind of tree is actually planted? Yeah, it's a really good
5: question. So some some tree species like pine, eucalyptus, you see those burning in, in southern Europe and in Australia. They're highly flammable uh, because of the, the make-up. The trees that we use uh, here, Sitka spruce is a good example, is a low fire risk species. It actually uh, it actually doesn't want to burn. I've, I've been in the Northwest Pacific, I've seen Sitka spruce, where Sitka spruce is actually native woodland. I've been in those valleys. And its reproductive mechanism is to blow over, is to fall over at, at, at 300 years of age. Their home environment is very like Ireland, very wet, moist and temperate types of, of, of climate. And those coastal ranges that the tree grows in They're not fire-prone. They're not as fire-prone as other parts of the the west of of the US. Other species then, like Douglas fir, are more flammable, and pines. Uh, They're less common in our forests. Our native forests type are generally less flammable, but what we see in young, young, young forests are the most vulnerable. We don't lose much forest at the moment. We lose about 200 hectares of forest a year, less in some years. And in in certain years then, we have bigger, more difficult fires where the area can can be bigger. Cluj and Galway in 2017 was a a good example. But generally, our trees burn as a secondary fuel. It means that the grass or the gorse or the bracken in and around those species has actually gone on fire. Then subsequently, the fire is able to climb a ladder into the tree crop up from grass and so on. Kieran. I remember
6: being in Yellowstone Park back in the 1980s and there was a fire you couldn't see any flames but lots and lots of smoke up on the mountain and it seemed very ominous so I asked the rangers about it and they said well um, it had been burning for they said three months. Now it seems that, I gathered from them, that America has had a change of heart, ecologists in America had a change of heart back in the 1960s. Up to then they used to think, oh we must blot out all fires, but then they began to realise that fires are part of the ecosystem as they saw it. And there are certain species that needed things like black-backed woodpecker and things like that, that needed the the fire to change the landscape for their own survival. Now, in Ireland, burning of old stands of heather benefits things like grouse. In fact, the farmers burn the old stands of heather I gather, so that young shoots come up which the sheep love and grouse love it as well and that it is a blessing in disguise in some way. It seems that we should accept it. We are now becoming a more semi-tropical country where fires are going to be part of our lives because we're getting warmer and warmer and we have to take this on board and we have to live with it to some extent. Should we regulate better the burning of heather for young shoots by farmers?
5: You're playing music to my ears there, Richard. And When you look at fire, fire is an ecological process. There's ecological outcomes from every single fire. And the outcomes are either positive or negative. So we have good fires and bad fires. And the example that you are given there, it was the policy in the United States to suppress all fires before 10 a.m. the following day. In 1910, they had a huge fire that stretched from from almost from Chicago across the the north uh, west of of the U.S. The, the year of the fires, very very famous fire incident, and people started rethinking their approach to fire and the fire ecologists. Fire ecology started to develop as a science in its own right, as a discipline. And, and I, I'm part of a, of, a, of a wider fire community, fire management community. And what we know within that community is that if you suppress all fires, if you ban fire completely with legislation and you penalise people for burning and you exclude fire from your landscapes completely, at some point in the future, you are going to have a much, much bigger problem you're going to have much bigger fires, more destructive fires. And that has been the lesson in every country where they've attempted to exclude uh, fire completely. So we have to accept fire. We have to learn to live alongside it. And most importantly, we have to learn to harness it. It's a useful tool. It's the oldest land management tool that people have had. And if we harness it, we have a lot of biodiversity challenges there at the moment. And nesting birds are, are one of those. Hen harriers, curlews, grouse, all of these threatened species, they all rely on the habitat that they're in. They're absolutely reliant on grazing, on the foraging capabilities of where they live. And if fire is managed properly, that can be a tool to help us do that. If we don't manage fire and we maintain this current situation where fires are sweeping across homogenous fires, removing all the vegetation bringing everything back to an even point. That's what that's what they do. Uh, you go out onto some of these bogs after after large fires and you're looking at a sheet of carbon and it takes years for the vegetation to grow back. And when it grows back, it's homogenous and it's even. The millennia comes back. We have cycles of millennia gets burned, regrows. The millennia then dominates the sites and those sites are now permanently at, at risk from fire. There's no natural improvement there. So we have to intervene. If we use fire wisely and if we allow people to use fire responsibly, we license it or we we regulate it properly. And most importantly, we prepare people to use it properly. We can actually get a completely different situation to the one we have now. Small fires, cooler fires burning in early spring, won't penetrate the soil. They're not going to disturb nesting uh, habit, ha- habits. They're not going to impact on vegetation uh, development. And if we keep doing that over time, we develop a better mosaic in our habitats that we can support more of the types of birds, more of the types of wildlife that we're trying to, we're trying to encourage and protect. And also, when you do have a fire in those types of landscapes, that mosaic is essentially a vaccination against wildfire in those landscapes. And any fire you have is going to be limited by the breakup of the fuel load on, on it, particularly in heather. And it's going to be limited then in terms of how it can how it can extend. The other thing that we need to do is get more grazing in some of these places and the animals and do lots of different things. It's not just about fire, it's about grazing, it's about some mechanized treatment. And it's about all of these things happening together in a planned way in a landscape for the best effect. But The idea that we can just exclude fire from landscapes, that's going to lead to much, much bigger problems. We are now in a different climate reality and we're starting to see that reality play out. We have to start doing different things.
7: You spoke earlier about the causes of these fires and how human origins for, for most of the, most of them seems to, seems to be par for the course. One thing that a surprising number of people consistently tell me uh, when a fire breaks out, they often say, oh, it was probably sunlight being uh, magnified through a glass bottle that started a fire. Now, I've never believed that myself and I've seen where some of these fires occur, why would there be a glass bottle anywhere near there? That's often my thought. But have you ever come across this? Is this a myth we can put to bed or can it actually
5: happen? Yeah. Put it to bed... It drives us nuts when you hear people talking about the broken bottles, glass on a bottle. If this happened, every roadside in Australia would be on fire. It doesn't happen. And I've been on fire investigations courses. I've worked with fire investigators and the broken glass, it it's a myth. People light fires. They go out, they use lighters, they use portable barbecues, disposable barbecues. They use a variety of things, but broken glass in our climate here, it just doesn't work. There's been lots of laboratory tests to try and do it, and uh, if you can, like uh, fire with glass from the sun, you know it's a it's a lottery winning type situation. It just just can't happen. Uh, I used to
7: live in North America in upstate New York where there's lots of forestry and you see both forestry plantations and native forests across a lot of North America. And very often I'd be out birdwatching and I'd see signs saying that certain areas were closed off because of what they call prescribed burns or controlled burns. And I, I witnessed some of these and it was quite uh, quite interesting and quite surreal, I must say, to see forestry workers actually going through essentially with flamethrowers setting fire to blocks of trees. Now, you've been talking about the need to reduce the fuel load and to and to make sure there's not so much Bustling material for live fire to spread. Is there a role for this kind of prescriptive burning here in Ireland?
5: I, I believe there is. I think, uh, and I've been involved in, and I've been trained in the U.S. in those techniques. I've been involved in in prescribed burning, and I've been in Spain and Portugal. We've d- done this in Spain and Portugal, and I trained in this also in Spain. So there is a place for it. We have uh, land use advisors, people in Wicklow at the moment in, in Chagos who have been trained and on some of the projects, and who are trialing these techniques in those landscapes and there is a place for it. And there is a place for us to take, there's a tradition of burning in farming and in particular in the West Coast uh, and in our mountain areas. And it's about modernising that tradition. I think we have to accept that tradition exists. I think that will be a good thing. But we also have to accept that the techniques and the approaches that people have, they need to be updated. And there's a lot that we can be, that we can learn from Those North American systems, I think they're very, very well organized. And I think that that's really good. I think if people would adopt some of those, our department has issued guidance on, on prescribed burning previously. I think it's about people adopting modern techniques for these things and keeping safe and making sure that those fires are then a useful tool. and They're beneficial and not the opposite. And if they're applied correctly, they're actually very light on the land compared to mechanised operations, compared to bringing machinery up a mountain to cut vegetation. They're quite light. And we can go back afterwards and we can see areas that were burned. We can say, you know, that that worked well. The vegetation has recovered. The vegetation has improved and the habitat conditions have improved. And then you go back to some of these wildfire sites where fires are too hot, they're at the wrong time, the soil is too dry, all of these things are wrong and the sites still haven't recovered properly. Or as you say, the communities of vegetation have changed, they've become homogenous. I think we need to to break from that. This is one tool. We need a toolbox of things to do and goats are a tool. Mechanised treatments, mowing are tools. All of those things, people going out with hand tools working to cut vegetation and and, and clear fire breaks. That's another tool in the box. And again, the people on our land, the people who manage our land, whether they're farmers or land managers, forestry, national parks, all of those people have a role in this. We all have to try and learn about these techniques and learn about how we apply those in our specific landscapes. That's the most important part.
0: And I suppose in the meantime, while we're getting our act together, I say in inverted commas, you say to people, do not leave anything behind you. Do not light fires.
5: I think, I think that's it. And I think if you're visiting forests in particular, leave your barbecue at home. We want people to go. More people than ever are visiting our forests, which is brilliant. And more people than ever are doing more things in our forests. People are, are, are encouraged to go there. There's lots of new uh, act- activities and lots of new mm-hmm. things for people to see in these places. But it's really, really important. And, and on the mountains, people that are visiting our mountain sites, hill walkers don't really light fires. There's not really a good, uh, a good linkage there. But for people who are visiting these places, to behave responsibly and protect those places. And we're talking about protecting homes and protecting all of these things. There are other homes in those landscapes. There's wildlife there. There are birds. There are lots of things in our forests, in our mountain lands that we also need to be mindful of. And every single individual has a role in that. And all of these different departments, we're all working on this. And I think what we've seen over the over the last few years, the level of cooperation on this between fire brigades, the Department of Housing, the Emergency Management people and the National Park Service, and, and particularly Medair, Air and the work that we've done with, with Medair, Air and has been really important. That cooperation gives us a head start and it's really, really important now when we look at what's happening elsewhere in Europe that we start to step up to this, particularly ordinary people going to visit these places be aware of their role in this. And I think to, just to behave responsibly is really important.
0: And I suppose the landowners have a responsibility too. So what's your message to the landowners?
5: The landowners are central. In in my view here, landowners are one of the most important elements in this because they're there all the time. They're there every day and their activities happen on a day-to-day basis. And when, when you go to Spain and Portugal and you look at the catastrophic places, big, big fires in Catalonia, huge fires in central Portugal, northern Spain, and you ask the fire managers in these places, what would you like to see here? And they say the same thing. They say, give us back our farmers. Put people back on the land. When we remove people from the land, and lots of parts of Southern Europe, one of the problems they're having with fire is that there's nobody left. The land has been abandoned. We see this now in parts of Central Europe. The land has been abandoned and vegetation is growing up and that is now on fire and that's now causing bigger problems. And for us, it's to maintain that activity in the places where it's needed and to keep viable, vibrant communities in those landscapes, working the land and managing this. And I think that's the key thing. Farmers are central to that and we have to work with those groups. Uh, And that's been happening. The EIP projects, there are now eight projects supported by the department, helping those communities, helping farmers in those landscapes to deal with some of these issues. And now the Hen Harrier project, that's a very well-known, very large project. That's now being scaled up to what's known as a cooperation project. And that's going to be working across many more mountain areas. Uh, It was focused in a few areas with hen harriers. That's going to be focused across many more landscapes now and helping farmers adjust to some of these realities. So it's going to be very exciting to see where that project takes these issues. And again, providing that guidance and direct support then to people living in those landscapes. It's almost a unique example in Europe of how we'll do this. And I think it's going to be very exciting to see how other countries will respond uh, to what we're doing here. Ar- Ireland is not a big fire country. We don't have the same risk as some of the su- southern European countries. But I think some of the solutions that are being developed here will will, will, will have re- relevance in, in some of those places.
0: Kieran, thank you very much indeed.
5: Thank you. Thanks for your time, Derek.
0: Now, so powerful a force are wildfires. It's fair to say that life on Earth has in many respects been shaped by them. There have been Five major mass extinction events in the history of our planet. The so-called End Permian event, which occurred around 250 million years ago, was the worst one to date. During it, at least 80% of marine species and 60% of land species were condemned to extinction. And it took several million years for ecosystems to recover. Researchers at University College Cork and the Swedish Museum of Natural History investigating these destructive prehistoric episodes have discovered a sharp spike in wildlife activity from this most devastating of mass extinctions. They have found clear evidence of rapid greenhouse gas emissions from volcanoes, which led to extreme warming through climate change and therefore to the widespread drying of vegetation. This, in turn, fueled enormous wildfires across vast regions, making the planet even more hostile to life. History repeats itself, as they say. Now, some 250 million years later, might the increase in wildfires we are seeing now indicate that we're on a similar path to mass extinction. Dr. Chris Mays is a lecturer in paleontology at University College Cork and lead author of the study. He joins us now from the studio on the UCC campus. Hello, Chris. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. Can you begin by explaining what the end
8: Permian event was? So the end Permian event was essentially the the largest mass extinction that's ever happened. Uh, Some have come close, but not quite topped this one. The reason why this was so extreme, and and particularly why it's so interesting, is because the world got very hot very fast, um, driven almost entirely by carbon dioxide. Now, that's starting to sound familiar. It's because we're starting to look at this worst of all mass extinctions as a potential analog for what we're seeing in terms of uh, warming today so um, it seems that as if uh, as we look more and more into it you may be able to wipe out almost all species on earth just by rapid release of carbon dioxide
6: chris will you say an event Uh, what are these extinctions more like processes it goes on for quite a while gradual thing like what it seems is happening now for the last few centuries everything is changing the environment is changing the Permian die-off is that in any way a guide to what's happening now or what will happen to us soon if we can't correct it
8: yeah that's right so uh, it's a good it's a good point Richard so the main reason why we call it an event is because when you look in the rock record we look back in time and these sort of fairly long, drawn-out sequences of of, of, uh, conditions sort of get compressed into the rock record into fairly short um, rock intervals. So basically what might have happened over hundreds or thousands of years is represented by a fairly narrow band in the rock. And so to a geologist, an event can actually last for thousands of years. Um, But what we're seeing is that uh, regardless of the time frame, the, this rapidity of the warming is, seems to be what's key. Uh, now, when I'm saying rapid, I'm talking thousands of years. In the modern warming, uh, what we're seeing is a similar sort of uh, increase in temperature, but on a shorter time frame. We're talking hundreds rather than thousands of years. It's, it's, and because if the warming really is the the key to causing mass extinctions, that's why we want to know what uh, would happen in the past, because these are events are occurring on on longer time frames. If you warm things up even faster, plants and animals can only suffer more. So we're uh, actually going to be keeping an eye on the time frame as we develop. And as our techniques get better, we're finding that the events of the early, early warming periods uh, in Earth's history are becoming more and more relevant, not less.
6: I think we don't really know what caused the Great Permian die-off. but It seems to have been volcanic eruptions elsewhere in the world. It's usually some kind of catastrophe like that that triggers the process. Is there a sequence we can discern in these things? Uh, first of all, you have the initial shock. Then you have an effects on species, deforestation and so on, carbon releases can you go through the sequence of decline when an event like this takes place
8: you really nailed the the main culprit which is uh, a volcanic eruptions of the uh, um, uh, in in siberia where there was a large amount of carbon locked up in the rocks underneath uh, the surface of the earth when these hot rocks came up through those hot uh, those um, carbon rich rocks the, the oil and gas and coal bearing rocks they basically vaporized it and sent those carbon Uh, At atoms into the atmosphere in forms of carbon dioxide and other um, greenhouse gases, and so in a sense, what we're seeing in the fossil record was a uh, an emission. A release of carbon dioxide and and other greenhouse gases fairly rapidly from the warming of uh, the burning of these hydrocarbons, these base, uh, these coal, oil, and gas. That's why we're starting to draw parallels because what we're seeing in in the fossil record was a fairly inefficient way to release greenhouse gases, whereas today humans are effectively going out and and very precisely dragging out the carbon dioxide out of the ground and releasing it into the air. So um, that's why we have to be a little bit more wary about the uh, drawing differences between the, f- the past and the present, when the end result may just be if we increase CO2, regardless of the source, it may have the, the same end product.
7: So Chris, in a sense, we humans are the volcano in this scenario.
8: That's right, a very efficient and very precise volcano.
7: So you mentioned there about the geological record, the fossil record. What does that actually reveal, though, in terms of carbon release? How can we tell that this happened?
8: What we can see in the rock record, the isotopes of certain chemicals in the the fossils that show that the amount of carbon and the types of carbon, more importantly, were released at an extremely high uh, rate and then locked up in the plants and animals at the time. So when you form your bones, when you're uh, eating your food, and as plants uh, drag carbon out of the atmosphere, what they're doing is taking the carbon signature of the atmosphere and locking it up into their their cells. When those cells are buried, those carbon uh, signals are actually preserved in the rocks. And from that, we can actually get a flavor for the sorts of carbon sources. Uh, at that time. So, what we see is pretty much a huge release of uh, carbon dioxide at the time of the extinction.
7: And I understand that one of those sources would appear to be wildfires. Do they play a major role in the extinction event?
8: So, wildfires are an interesting one because they're not only a result of the warming, but they could also be a cause of the warming because they're in a, a very efficient way to release carbon dioxide when you're burning them. So, if you take uh, the large uh, areas in, in the world today which are drawing carbon down out of the atmosphere, what they call carbon sinks, these are places where coal and, and peats are forming today. If you were to burn those areas, which we're seeing in some places like in uh, in the wetlands of, of Central South America, in Siberia today, also in regions of tundras and, and wetlands, in essence what you see, um, the carbon is no longer being captured at the same rate. And in fact, what's happening is these are areas are burning and they're becoming carbon sources rather than carbon sinks. And this is a really key way in which fire can play a huge uh, problem, trying to maintain these uh, fairly stable carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. So, is the danger therefore that this
7: becomes a self-perpetuating cycle? That as as forests and grasslands and peatlands burn, they're releasing carbon dioxide, but we're all, they're also that their ability then to absorb carbon from the atmosphere is also taken away as well. So, it just gets worse.
8: Exactly. So, there's there's really three three main prongs that the wildfires are playing in in this sort of formula of disaster. One is that burning these areas which are renowned for their carbon capture ability. During the burning phase you're actually converting the carbon into carbon dioxide so you're not only stopping the capture of carbon you're actually releasing it into the atmosphere directly. And lastly there. are they're hot. So the animals and plants suffer during these extreme wildfire events, as we've seen in areas like California, uh, in Southeast Australia. That's actually where I'm from, you might have noticed from my accent. And there's billions of of large animals that were burned in the 2019-2020 wildfires. And these burning events may be unsustainable for a lot of populations of animals and plants. So your message is maintain carbon sinks at all costs? That would be the the main consensus, I think, of most scientists. I don't think there would be many scientists out there who would disagree that burning our carbon sinks, the, these wetlands, these uh, peat-forming areas, the tundras of Siberia, really try to maintain these as much as we can, uh, would be the, the main message I would like to uh, promote. In, in some regards, it's actually an optimistic message because yes. they're actually quite small areas. We don't have to worry about trying to preserve every single uh, patch of land. If we can really target these areas as, as carbon sinks, uh, our main allies in, in the fight against uh, the worst effects of climate change, then we can do a lot of the uh, heavy lifting of our mitigation efforts.
0: Chris, thank you very much indeed. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Thanks to Aina, to Richard, to Nile, Terry Flanagan, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and our researcher, John Reilly. We'll do it all again next week. In the meantime, visit the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.
1: And Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.